There are a litany of reasons why baseball is the most Jewish sport in America. It's old. Some of its rules don't even make sense. Some people are such sticklers for tradition that new fans have a hard time getting into the sport. And some games are so long, they put the conservative temple high holiday services of my youth to actual shame. But in what is perhaps the Jewiest of sports, nothing about the game is more Jewish than the New York Mets. I'm Meredith Schreiner, and on this, the third episode of the franchise, we're going to meet the Mets. It's funny. When I first pitched this episode, I think my producers took the idea literally. Like, oh, there are a lot of Jewish Mets fans and kosher food stands at City Field, and an Israel night, which some light internet research tells me also seems to double as a mixer for single and ready-to-mingle Jewish Mets fans. But I meant it differently. I meant that the Mets are the most metaphysically, spiritually Jewish team. Like, in my mind, if Yiddish were being written today, in America, Alongside oive, nash, and schmooze, there would be another essential word. Lolmets. Lolmets is the marriage of internet slang for laughing out loud and the Mets. But more than that, Lolmets is an incredible virtue signal. On social media, and specifically Twitter, it means failing in spectacular fashion, but in a predictable, assumed, or karmically inept sort of way. Lolmets is more than a meme. It's a neuroses, an inherited dread, a belief that the worst will always happen. Because as a baseball fan, you, your forebears, and your offspring have chosen the New York Mets. And this, this is your reward for that choice. Safe. The Mets' sixth error of the game. Drop the ball! He dropped the ball! Here comes Teixeira, and the Yankees win! Glavitt makes the throw there and throws it into left field. Ross comes home to score. The wheels come off early. The Marlins have put up seven runs in the top of the first inning, and the Mets are in danger of seeing their season end today. What we just heard there... That last clip, that was the moment we think Volmets was born. In 2007, around the time that former Atlanta Brave turned Mets pitcher Tom Glavin, a Hall of Famer, epically melted down in the final game of the season. He gave up seven runs in one-third of an inning, the shortest outing of his 21-year career. It sealed the Mets' historic collapse that season, where they relinquished a division lead they had held since May in the last weekend of the year and lost a spot in the playoffs. If you follow the 2022 Mets season, this might sound vaguely familiar. Only the Mets could give us the same movie more than once. Holding a division lead for months only to blow it in the last weekend of the season. The only difference between 2007 and 2022? 
was that the Mets had an opportunity this year to lose again because a wildcard series existed for them to lose. Gather around, you sad minion of Mets fans. Thanks to Lowell Mets, you knew that this is how it would end. Lowell Mets is also how non-Mets fans understand the Mets. It's a joke, but it's also sort of an embrace of the tradition, the absurdity, and the lifetime trial by fire that is being a Mets fan. Do you ever wonder why there are so many Jewish comedians and also comedians who are Mets fans? Observational comedy? It's just Lowell Mets. Jerry Seinfeld, in a Mets hat, posing for a streetwear fashion photo shoot that maybe cursed the 2022 season, but then blaming an Australian trumpet player who flew to New York to jam with Mr. and Mrs. Met because a pitcher had used his music as a walk-up song? That actually happened, and it's too weird not to be Lowell Mutz. Here's the deal. Yankees fans would never lull Yankees. They're not self-deprecating. They don't center suffering and complaining into their very existence. They don't know what it's like to wander in the desert for 40 years and still wonder if they'll ever make it to the promised land. Making it is Yankees. Not making it is Mets. I'm Meredith Shiner, and this is The Franchise, Jews, Sports, and America. In our first episode, we talked about the mysticism of curses. Today, I want to talk about being cursed and surviving to tell the tale. Because that's Judaism, surviving persecution again and again. And that's Matt's fandom, surviving, well, literally anything that could go wrong for a baseball team at any time. I guess I should confess here that even though I'm hosting a conversation on the Mets being the most Jewish team in all of sports, I am not, myself, a Mets fan. I did spend quite a bit of time on the East Coast, where I met many a New York Jewish Mets fan. And I am a White Sox fan, so I do know what it's like to be a second-class sports citizen in the town in which I grew up. So while I feel like I have some baseline understanding, I needed to talk to the best Mets experts around to prove my thesis. And any conversation on the Mets being cursed should start with the guy who wrote the book on it. Devin Gordon is a journalist, Mets superfan, and author of So Many Ways to Lose, the amazing true story of the New York Mets, the best worst team in sports. Like many journalists and Mets fans, Devin is also Jewish. One of the lines that you have when you were describing Mets fandom, it was so true, which was the idea that Mets fans are the phoenix that rises from the ashes only to light ourselves on fire and to go right back to ashes again. And there was something very like biblical, like temple construction of that. Like it was very sports fan 
American Judaism Old Testament feeling? First of all, the Mets are definitely an angry God team. They are not a New Testament team. I don't really understand Jews who are Yankee fans. Like if you were born in the Bronx and if you inherited it from a family member, right? I have outlined that those are the two acceptable reasons for a person to be a Yankee fan. Anyone who falls outside of that criteria, they chose. It's like, didn't you get the memo? Didn't you go to shul? How did you mess this up? And with the Mets, part of it is that instinct that we have as Jews. Part of it is probably the cultural tradition that we're born into. I can sort of relate to Mets fans. So I grew up in Chicago and I'm a White Sox fan. And that was a very particular choice for me. The White Sox are the Mets of Chicago. That's an often confused thing. Yes. I wrote in my book, I call the Mets the best worst team in sports. And so in the prologue, I do actually go through a lot of the teams that I consider to be best worst contenders. And the Cubs are an obvious one that comes to mind, right? They're the lovable losers. I mean, in that respect, they're very Metsy. But in reality, the Cubs are the posh team, right? They're mm-hmm. the nice have team, been. the fancy team, always have been with the wealthy fans. And that ain't the Mets, you know? The White Sox are the Mets. Part of the cadence and the culture of Mets fandom is just that like embedded suffering yeah. in the hopes of that once-in-a-lifetime promise yep. that makes that moment the best moment of your life. But like the penance that you have to pay to get there, to me, that's also like a very like Jewish concept. Yeah. And I mean, I think the humor that comes with it becomes the coping mechanism, right? It becomes the way that you survive it, endure it, keep it in the proper perspective, right? And I feel like that's a that's the way most of us, if we were talking about how you should approach your life, being a Mets fan is good practice. What I learned in the course of reporting this episode is what I always assumed about that practice of being a Mets fan. It's lifelong. Remember writer Jane Levy, who I interviewed for our first episode on Sandy Koufax? She shared with me her favorite story of her own father, a Mets fan, and how his connection to the team was practically eternal. My father was a Mets fan. He was on his deathbed and uh, in lots of pain. The only thing I could do to placate his pain at all was to distract him by reading Mets game stories from the Post, the Daily News and the Times and God knows where else. And his left words on this mortal coil were, oi, the Mets. There's nothing more Mets than that. Nothing more Mets than that. Before we get too deep on how the Mets are so Jewish in spirit, I want to take a time out here and actually explain how so many Jewish New Yorkers found themselves bound forever to the Mets instead of the Yankees. It's not just because Yankees fans are annoyingly perennial winners, and that just didn't match up with Jewish vibes. It's also because so many New York area Jews were left without a baseball home in 1957 when the owners of the Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York baseball giants packed up their teams and moved them out west to Los Angeles and San Francisco, respectively. Here's Jane Levy again on her dad, who died a Mets fan, but wasn't born one. He became a Mets fan because the Giants left New York. You know, one of those tectonic moments that changed from New York being the capital of America to Hollywood and California being the place to be. 
Of course, being without a temple is not an unfamiliar narrative for Jews. And the Jews who loved the Giants, and especially the Dodgers, certainly would never turn to the Yankees, not after generations of cultivated hate for the team. And they were largely too burned by the departure of their teams to stick with them in California. Plus, it's not like there was MLB TV back then. There was also an extremely personal element to the Dodgers leaving Brooklyn at the time they left. The Dodgers had just signed hometown prospect Sandy Koufax in 1954, three years before the team left New York. Sandy Koufax hitting his prime in Los Angeles still entered him into the pantheon of Jewish sports heroes. But had he done the same thing in Brooklyn, an enclave for American Jews in the 60s? It would have been next level. The Void Left, especially in New York, by one of the greatest what-if stories for American Jews, was huge. And it's central to the origin story of the Mets, constantly reaching for something that feels just outside of their grasp. Journalist Howard Megdahl, author of the Baseball Talmud, refers to Sandy's untimely departure with the Dodgers as the Elijah factor for the Mets, like fans are waiting for a prophet and a utopia that might never come. There is an Elijah element to the New York Mets in a couple of different ways, not least of which that we've never had in New York, even with the Yankees, a bona fide star of stars who was also Jewish. And I think we both know what that would have meant and what that still would mean in the city of New York. I mean, I think back to, I think it was in 1954, 50% of the Brooklyn Dodgers season ticket holders were Jewish. And you just think about what that would have meant had the Dodgers not been ripped out of the fabric of Brooklyn during that time, stolen from my then 11-year-old father, among many others, and Koufax becoming that star and just a very different Jewish story that we would all be telling. It's wild to think that in the shadow of what would have been with Sandy, New York baseball fans are still waiting for their prophet. And if he arrived, he'd have to play for the Mets. So when the Mets came to town in 1962, it didn't matter that they posted a major league record for the most losses in a single season since 1899. What mattered was the fact that they were there at all. Sports journalist Dave Zirin put it this way. You can't understand why there's such a Jewish fan base around the Mets if you don't understand the way generations of Jews grew up revering the Brooklyn Dodgers and how when the Brooklyn Dodgers went the way of Los Angeles, the children were forbidden to root for the New York Yankees. And so the Mets were the repository of this generation of Jewish love that was poured into the Brooklyn Dodgers. So I think that's what forms the basis of it. After the Dodgers abandoned them, Jewish baseball fans were left in the Egypt-like desert of Brooklyn. And instead of reaching Canaan, they arrived in Queens. It wasn't the promised land. It was like an entirely different desert where their suffering became permanent instead of transitory. There was no turning back. This was their community now. I asked one of my dearest friends in life, and perhaps one of the biggest Mets fans on planet Earth, Aaron Lamb, why the Mets are just so Jewish. I thought about it, and I was like, you know, it's got to be somewhat 
akin to being Jewish in America, where like within your own communities, right, you can have these incredibly robust Jewish communities and, and everybody knows each other, you know, and you feel like your whole life is like, like everyone must be like this. You go 10 feet out of it. No one's like that, right? You just have to be used to that. And that's one of the things with the Mets. Like you're already selected out. You've already like kind of selected into this harder thing. It's a harder event. It's a harder team to root for. You're so excited to just find another Mets fan. You'll brace yourself almost when someone says they're from New York. And then it's like, oh my God, you're one of us. By the way, Erin isn't technically one of us. She's New Jersey Catholic by birth and Jewish by Mets fandom. I've always joked with her that other than being a lawyer, being a Mets fan is the most Jewish thing about her. But Erin didn't need to go to Hebrew school. She got her Jewish education by showing up at Mets games and tuning into Mets broadcasts. And if Mets Nation is America's largest congregation, then TV play-by-play announcer Gary Cohen is its lead rabbi. I gave up four runs on four hits, including the home run to Lindora that got the whole Megillah started. The whole what? The Megillah. was the story of Purim. Come on, keep up. Queen Esther. I thought you were going cartoons again. (laughs) Amen. Cohen has served this unique community since 1989, first on the radio, and then, beginning in 2006, on TV, with his television tenure spanning the entirety of the Lolmats era. It's hard to imagine any other team voiced by someone who so seamlessly integrates phrases like the whole Megillah into a Francisco Lindor at bat, and then has to co-insplain Purim to his boothmate, Keith Hernandez, under the guise of Jewish holiday history or any other fan base witnessing that and thinking, yep, that's us. Gotta tweet it. Do you know what, Manishtana? No, I don't. It's the beginning of the four questions that you read on Passover. Okay. Got to look like Gaga? No, what's that? So, you use benches to fence in uh, an area and you bang the ball off the benches to try to hit somebody? No. Not like dodgeball, but indirectly. Really? Never heard of this. How did New York game? Jewish summer camp. Malone looking for his first hit of the year. Oh. He drives one. Deep left field. Back goes Upton. Back near the wall. It's out of here. Bartolo has done it. That last one wasn't Jewish. That's just my favorite Mets moment and Cohen call of all time. When middle-aged fat guy pitcher Bartolo Colon hit his first and only career home run. Twenty-second time out here. I was supposed to interview Gary Cohen for this episode. We were told for months we'd be able to get him. But at the deadline, it collapsed. Frankly, I feel like it's more fitting for a Mets episode to have lost the interview this way than to have actually done it. But Gary, if you're listening, call me. I'd love to drop a bonus episode. What's a congregation, or even a rabbi, though, without holidays? Almost a decade ago, when I lived in D.C., I saw a Jon Stewart stand-up show. Given the crowd, he mostly made political jokes. But those... Those aren't the jokes I remember. The jokes I remember 
were part of a riff about Jewish holidays. Stuart is Jewish. His wife, Tracy McShane, is not. They have two kids who were young at the time. I don't want to spoil the punchline of the joke, but the gist is that it's impossible for Jewish holidays to compete with Christian holidays because Jews don't know how to make holidays fun. Stewart did the bit again on The Daily Show in 2012. It went something like this. Oh, which, which egg am I going to go for? The one filled with chocolate or the one filled with egg? Because <laughs> it's an actual f***ing egg. Maybe it stuck with me because it was like looking down the tunnel of my own future as a parent in an interfaith marriage. But it mostly hit because he so captured part of the essence of Jewish holidays, which is that at least the biggest ones are often about withholding things we typically enjoy and proving we can suffer through it on our own and as a community. Cue Bobby Bonilla Day. If the Mets are the most Jewish team, they need to have the most Jewish holiday, a holiday built around generational suffering, complaining about the holiday itself, and perceived inferiority to cultures whose holidays are defined by bounty. And friends, let me tell you, the Mets do have such a holiday. It's called Bobby Bonilla Day. If you have not been observing this incredible occasion since July 1st, 2011, some background. In 1999, the Mets were finally rebounding from a long stretch of being very bad at baseball. But they had a problem. Bobby Bonilla. Bobby Bonilla wanted to play the outfield every day. And the Mets did not want Bobby Bonilla to play in the outfield every day. He was unhappy, a risk of poisoning the clubhouse, and also owed $6 million in 2000 money the Mets would need to use elsewhere to compete for a World Series. So a novel-for-the-time approach was considered to give everyone what they wanted. Deferred money. The Mets would not have to pay Bobby Bonilla his $6 million in 2000. Heck, they would not even have to pay him a cent until 2011, more than a decade later. In exchange, the Mets would pay Bobby Bonilla just more than $1 million every July 1st for 25 years, until 2035, when Bobby Bonilla would be 72 years old. Devin Gordon dedicated a whole chapter to Bobby Bonilla Day in his book, and he wrote something that really stuck with me. There's no parade, not even a barbecue. It's a holiday we celebrate with a communal sigh. You know the one. And maybe votive on big anniversaries. Comics crack jokes about it on Twitter. When I read those words, it hit me. That's a Jewish holiday. The crazy thing about Bobby Bonilla Day is that it worked out so well for the Mets, largely by accident. The Wilpons, who owned the team then, thought that they'd have more money than they knew what to do with by the time they needed to pay Bobby. They thought that because Bernie Madoff told them so. And well, we know how that ended. With Bernie Madoff in jail, for losing everyone's money in the most notorious Ponzi scheme in American history. But before all that, the Wilpons used the money they would have spent on Bonilla in 2000 to get extra pitching arms and made it to the World Series that year 
And actually, had Bobby Bonilla taken the lump sum and invested it, he probably would have had more money in the bank that way than annualized over the course of 25 years. But there's something about the annual ritual of the Mets cutting a check to Bobby Bonilla for such an unimaginably long period of time. I've started joking recently about my firm belief that the Bobby Bonilla contract will outlast American democracy. Taken in perpetuity, Bobby Bonilla Day makes it feel as if the Mets are losing. Like Devin said, somehow the Mets managed to get it wrong, even when they got it right. They blew it, even though they nailed it. And honestly, how is that so different than Jon Stewart's take on Passover? A holiday to celebrate our exodus from slavery, not truly reflecting the spoils of our freedom. Bobby Bonilla Day is Mets Passover in July. Speaking of Jon Stewart, he is, of course, a Mets fan. The Mets and I have had one thing in common. Neither of us had ever thrown a no-hitter. Um, so many comedians are. Jerry Seinfeld. If you know what happened in the Met game, don't say anything. I taped it. Hello. You, you can't not love these guys. There's no reason they can't make a run. Chris Rock. Hank Azaria. Being a Mets fan of this town, it's like being the unloved, forgotten little brother. It's basically like being Stephen Baldwin, which is <laughs> the worst thing that anybody could possibly be. A lot of comedians also happen to be Jewish, a full 75% of the list I just shared. So by transitive property, there are quite a few Jewish comedian Mets fans. I'm sure some people might view this as a coincidence but I'm pretty confident these are two branches of the same ancestral tree. What's funny is also Metsy. Just ask Mets fans like Ben Stiller and his dad, Jerry. Would you please welcome Jerry Stiller. Everybody, everybody sing with me. Take me out to the ball game. Or Adam Sandler. Turkey with gravy and cranberry. Can't believe the Mets traded Daryl Strawberry. The Mets have sunk since 86. I say it tried to ruin the Knicks. Or even Rodney Dangerfield. Well, last week the New York Mets gave me a night right here at Shea Stadium. It was no respect night. I threw out the first ball. Phil Rosenthal is the writer, creator, and executive producer of the long-running CBS sitcom Everybody Loves Raymond. Of course, the actor Ray Romano and his lead character in the show aren't Jewish. So on the surface, it might not seem like a Jewish comedy. But Phil Rosenthal is Jewish, and he was also born in Queens. One of the show's most famous episodes centers around the 1969 Miracle Mets. So we wanted to hear from Phil about his relationship to the Mets and why the Mets scenes in the show felt so realistic. My hunch was that it was born out of his joint love for Jewish culture and the baseball team from his home borough. When I was nine, the Mets, you know, were the 69 World Series Mets. I mean, my whole life revolved around them. When we were doing Raymond and Raymond was a sports writer, I wrote an episode where Ray goes to the Hall of Fame because the 69 Mets are going to be there. And we got 
all of them, all the surviving 1969 Mets to come to LA and film the episode with us. So Ray and I got to meet our childhood heroes. It was one of the best days of my life. You right? uh, yeah, I'm just a little nervous. Just relax, man. Just act normal. These guys are just like you and me. Ladies and gentlemen, from your 1969 New York Mets, please welcome Tommy Nietzsche. It was just a New York thing. I don't know if it was a Jewish thing, but I guess it felt Jewish. Uh, listen, Art Shamsky's Jewish, right? He was on the 69 Mets, and we named the dog, Robert's dog, on the show. We named him Shamsky after Art Shamsky. Love of baseball can be sentimental, but it's not always joyful. Humor doesn't come from a place of balanced joy. It comes from a place of unhinged reality, like that Jerry Seinfeld-Timmy trumpet blood feud. Thinking about these dynamics, I talked to Devin Gordon about how the Mets are funny and how winners, like the Yankees, are not. A lot of sort of the humor particularly Jewish humor, comes from this place of self-deprecation. And you can't yes. be self-deprecating if you're a Yankees fan. You shouldn't be. If you are, it's insufferable. And it's like, it's a, you know, it's false modesty to a degree that is gaslighting and obnoxious. Being a Yankees fan, it's not funny. There's no, there, there are no real lessons, life lessons learned. Like stand-up comedy to me is just like observational comedy, right? You're like looking at the world around you and people are laughing because they recognize sort of that misery or that experience. And that's, I think, very foreign to Yankees fans in a way that I think is it's currency or language to Mets fans. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, like it makes me think of that sh the show Succession, right? Like that's a comedy. It's a satire. It's not an aspirational drama or reality show, right? Like it's a comedy. We're laughing at those people. And, 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 it, and it's the same way with the Yankees. It's like if humor, enjoyment, minute to minute, you know, sort of embracing the goofiness and splendor and reality and weirdness of this game isn't the fundamental appeal of it for you, right? If winning and nothing short of winning is the only thing that, that truly gives you pleasure in this, God, it's so miserable. Like, I just, I don't want to, I don't want to be any part of that. It's impossible to do a full accounting of how the Mets are the most Jewish team without taking into consideration recent ownership. How the previous owners, the Wilpons, lost the team in the wake of the Madoff scandal and eventually sold it to its new owner, Steve Cohen. Honestly, the story of the Wilpons is so deep, so overpowering of an era of Mets fandom that we'll talk about them again later in this series. Because any discussion of the complicated feelings Jews have about Jewish team owners who disappoint us cannot be covered in an aside. But in talking to Howard Megdahl, the journalist and author, he shared something revealing about what it means to be a Mets fan, and more broadly, about what it means to be a fan of a team when the team doesn't love you back. His story is a bit more intense than the average Mets fans, given that he also covered the Mets as a working journalist. 
But the idea of why we choose to honor the fandom we inherit from our parents, why we don't just take it on for ourselves, but also give it to our kids, is so Jewish. And it's so Mets. When it comes to how I view Judaism for myself, traditions are more important to observe and practice precisely because they are traditions, part of a fragile but beautiful generational bond. The traditions, to me, are even more important than the believing. For as much as we've joked about Mets fandom, all of these jokes are part of a shared heritage that baseball, and specifically the Mets, have fostered for generations of American Jews. And for as much as I know Mets fans hate that as they're experiencing it, I love it. And Howard really put it best. Your New York Mets is a team who I watched win a World Series when I was six years old and now have two children older than six who are similarly invested emotionally. A father in his mid-70s as well, equally invested. Howard covered the Mets for years for various New York outlets. And in 2010, he even ran a quixotic campaign to become the general manager of the Mets because he felt they were being so mismanaged. He literally wrote a book about it called Taking the Field, One Fan's Quest to Run the Team He Loves. The uh, period of time when I have both written about the Mets, uh, specifically about their last owners, certainly was a strange emotional experience from start to finish. What made you feel emotional about it? Well, it was the team that I grew up rooting for. It was the discovery that there was significant legal financial malfeasance going on from the people who owned the team. And writing about that was a strange combination. Writing about the Mets and having a spokesman for then ownership attack me by name in the New York Post on a day I go in to get my daughter out of her crib and she's got a New York Mets nightlight was a very strange dichotomy to take place. I don't think there's any equivalence to something that can affect the mood and the day of a baseball fan 162 days out of the year. That's almost half your entire calendar year is affected by the, what your baseball team does. And I am a very optimistic person. And you can't not be if you're Baseball and in, indeed life uh, observations are shaped by being age six and seeing the Mets down to their final strike and rallying from two down in the 10th in order to win a World Series game and ultimately a World Series. I absolutely believe that has shaped the way I look at the world. I love that we're having this conversation in 2022. Like most years, the 2022 regular season was peak Mets. When I started working on this episode, the Mets were coasting as division leaders. By the time I was wrapping this episode, they had blown the lead. I swear to God, knowing when this episode would debut, I had to draft three paragraphs to hold for this section. Mets win, Mets lose, Mets lose catastrophically. As predicted, the Mets blew their division lead and lost in the playoffs. Jewish Mets fans are still wandering in their championship desert. In some ways, there is comfort in this ending, 
It's routine. It feels ritualistic. And ultimately, the annual ritual of the Mets' role metsing is what makes the Mets the Mets. I think there is a connection both relative to Judaism and baseball, and I think there is a lot of similarities there. I think there is ritual. I think there is study. There is a connection, like you said, to what came before us and a sense of passing on to what comes after us. I think to be Jewish in America in the 20th century has meant trying to find a way to assimilate and linking to baseball has mattered in those fundamental ways. I think it absolutely shaped multiple generations. My father was a Mets fan before the Wilpons owned the team, and my children would be Mets fans after they owned the team. That's so Jewish, this idea of inheritance and that it doesn't really matter if you're in the desert period. There's just always this belief that we're passing something along and like next year in Jerusalem. Next year in Jerusalem is exactly it. Next year in Queens. And next episode on the franchise, different promised lands or Jews who go pro in sports without taking the field. The Franchise is a podcast from Tablet Studios. The show is written and hosted by me, Meredith Shiner. Our executive producers are Josh Cross, Stephanie Butnick, and Liel Leibovitz. The show is produced, engineered, and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, and Quinn Waller, with help from Ellie Blyer. Our logo is by Kurt Hoffman. Special thanks to Tablet Magazine and the Tablet Studios team, including Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, Sara Fredman-Ader, and Jerome Rusquet, and the Meredith Shiner team of Josh and Carter Zembic. Please rate and review us wherever you can listen to podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this series, tell a friend. You can write to us at franchise at tabletmag.com. And for more information about the show, check out tabletmag.com slash the franchise. For more from Tablet Studios, please visit tabletmag.com slash podcasts. Oh, no.